Hey guys, welcome to Mayus Way. Thanks for coming in on such a nice day. Join us as we look at our call to gather tonight. Uh, it's uh, God Part 2. If you don't know God Part 1, it was a John... It's a reference to a John Lennon song, so you two wrote this for John Lennon. And I think another good title for this song is uh, I Believe in Love. repetitive kind of blues feel and if you haven't heard it I'm sure you'll be able to jump in as we go along or just feel free to listen. Don't believe the devil, don't believe his book, the truth is not the same without the lies he made of, don't believe in excess, excess is to give. Don't believe in riches, you should see where I live I, I believe in love Try that again with me Don't believe the devil Don't believe the devil Don't believe his book The truth is not the same without the lies he made up Don't believe in excess Success is a given Don't believe in riches you should see where I live I, I believe in love Don't believe in forced entry, don't believe in rape But every time she passes by, wild thoughts escape Don't believe in death row, skid row of the gangs Don't believe in the Uzi, just went off in my hands I will I believe in I can feel I I 
Thanks, guys. I'm Tim. Hey, welcome to Emmaus Way. It's good to see everybody tonight. Um, it doesn't feel like five o'clock, does it anymore? It's like it's like the middle of Sunday afternoon, but it is great to gather. It's it's you know one of the things we say about this community is that uh, we haven't figured it out, but one of the things that's that's we're passionate about is gathering together, gathering at the table, and in uh, embodying uh, Jesus's resurrection, living as a community of of hope and peace, but also to hear each other's voices, to gather around the text, to to hear each uh, each other's stories of hope and. Redemption and struggle and all of those things. So it's always a delight to, to gather with each other. A couple things. One is, um, I think when Laura Chase moves to Australia for a few weeks, I'm going to have lots of issues <laughs> at some point. If you tried these like moon pie things, gosh, I could commit my life to those. Um, but uh, the <laughs> the other thing, just a few quick things. Um, one. Um, Gareth Higgins was here with the Wild Goose Festival. Just want to keep reminding you, I guess that was two or three weeks ago. It's uh, over in Shikori Hills, June 23rd through 26th. It is a festival of uh, peace, uh, justice, spirituality, and art. Uh, some of the names here that will be there, uh, Over the Rhine, uh, Derek Webb, Michelle Schacht, Shane Claiborne, who, who's in town today, I think. I just saw him. Uh, David Wilcox, T-Bone Burnett, uh, uh, and, and more and more and more. Uh, but one of the things that's going to be really cool about this is it's one of, it's really kind of a non-hierarchical event. All the speakers are coming uh, for free. Um, it's a camping type of thing. Obviously, we live close enough that you could go and, and come back, but all the, the speakers and folks will be camping. And be alert to... Um, Jenny's emails on this because Emmaus Way is going to run the coffee hut at this event. And so uh, I think volunteers get in free. So if you volunteer a certain amount of time uh, to do that. So anyway, the Wild Goose Festival, if you have any questions about that, probably Jenny Nicholson or myself could talk to you a little bit about that. And another thing, there's a few copies of Conspire Magazine over there, which is just a magazine that's written for communities like ours, uh, small communities that are trying to embody justice, hope, uh, the, the resurrection of Christ, all those things. And so grab one of those if you're interested. Um, um, they were in town kind of seeking feedback. Also, um, Dan, where is Dan? Um, any feedback from, we're um, kind of been part of the Durham CAN process. We had a house meeting this past week. Oh, Vanessa, are you going to tell us a little bit about, uh, about the, uh, everybody knows CAN is one of our primary partnerships in the community, a grassroots, nonpartisan organizing community for issues of voice and justice in Durham. We're right in the kind of start of the process that kind of cycles every two years where people gather all over the town to talk about issues and needs. We had one of those. And then Vanessa, and I think Dave maybe went to kind of the Metro Caucus, which is one of the first big listening events that sets the agenda. So, Vanessa, do you have any feedback for us on that? Yeah, and I realized I wrote up the whole summary in the letter down to Dave, so I didn't You didn't memorize it in advance? I didn't memorize it But it was more of a summary of the goals that they've had for the past year or two, and kind of setting the stage for when the next round of goals will be so one of the big things the last time around was the foreclosure crisis and putting a lot of pressure on banks to change their policies. There's a lot of kind of shady stuff going on, as I think a lot of you know, with foreclosures and so trying to get things more legit and move forward with those things and putting a lot of pressure on like Bank of America, for example, since I think they're based in Charlotte and we have some clout with them. Um, 
and like ESL and especially Latino students performance in the Durham schools, there's a really high dropout rate and a really um, small percentage of Latino students who graduate. We don't really know why. Um, so there's a lot of people on that, and I'll kind of continue to be a parody. And I think right at the beginning, any other things? Well, the open streets, they're having like block party type things this summer. I think there'll be four, and two will be downtown, and two will be in specific neighborhoods. Um, it's always fun when they do the open streets because you can really, we can go and do and participate and then just cycle or walk over to, to church. And if you're kind of far away, you can park here and unicycle uh, the streets or, or otherwise. If, you, if, 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 you're, if you're lame and need two wheels, I think that's okay. Is that right, Chad? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think they're looking to be people who will be made to the that will Yeah, I'll keep you guys posted. You know, I met with a school superintendent two weeks ago with a group from CAN on um, ESL and, and Hispanic student performance. That's going to be a major issue here. So lots of good things happening. I mean, tonight you'll hear a mission story. One of the things that we, we want to do as a community is make sure you are invited into our life just in terms of what people are doing individually, in terms of lives of mission, or the partnerships that we hold precious. And so uh, CAN is one of those, and our host reality is another. So again, Again, please be invited and uh, never be shy about joining into those things. Tim Carlos, good to have you back this evening, buddy. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, we're going to continue with our songs, uh, preparation for uh, our continued conversation in the Gospel of John. And um, we've uh, been talking about, uh, we've had several passages where Jesus has declared himself to be the light of the world and, and uh, talks about who he is as the Messiah. And it's interesting because he clearly keeps running into problems. The, the Pharisees really want to kill him at this point. Um, he really threatens them. And then I think even his own followers are still having trouble figuring out that he's the light of the world, what that means, because they want him to free the, the Jews from their captivity with the Romans, and he's not doing that. And then he'll do some miracles, but they don't seem to make sense to what they want. And so uh, these next two songs, I think, talk about that idea of something like in Beautiful Day, it's talking about um, n- really noticing something as beautiful as a day can be. And I think there, there's a parallel with Christ. He's kind of saying, notice me, I'm what God's doing. But at the same time, you'll notice in the song, everything isn't fixed. You know, um, it says a heart is a bloom that shoots up through the stony ground. It's not like it blooms up through this great, nicely plowed field. Um, that there's tension in this song. And then also in our next song, Beacon, the light is, is, is certainly in contrast to the darkness. So hear that as we do these. The heart is a bloom. It shoots up through the stony ground. There's no room. No space to rent in this town out of love. And the reason that you had to care, traffic is stopped. And you're not moving anywhere. I thought you found a friend to take you out of this place. Someone you could lend a hand Return for grace It's a beautiful day Sky falls, you feel it A beautiful day 
well, even if that doesn't ring true, you've been all over, and it's been all over you. It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. Beautiful day. So Generous grace gathers dust. It's 
the beacon shining ever bright. The light at the end of the tunnel is in your eyes. You're the lamp to my feet and the arms at my side. And I will not be afraid. Victory hides in darkest places.
great. I can see your brain spinning on that. That's a really good telling of kind of where we are in John at this point. In fact, probably a lot of you have had that experience where you've tried to be faithful over something. I mean, you really tried to live faithfully or at least figure out exactly what that meant. And, and you encountered profound either distaste or somebody who challenged your act of faithfulness. Uh, and, and right where we're in John, we've, we've, we've been having these healings and amazing experiences where the people who've experienced them have been challenged by the people who should have helped them with their faithfulness, the leaders. And, and, and it's interesting that uh, this whole dialogue of Jesus and the crowds and the leaders has been one that the metaphor of light and darkness has been so extreme because people are looking for something in the wrong places. And in some ways, Jesus keeps declaring, I'm the light of the world. And people keep saying that surely that could not be true. So Wade, that was a, a wonderful introduction to kind of back to where we are. Um, one of the things that we have wanted to do on Sunday evenings, and it's been thanks to Julie and a bunch of other folks who've been a part of that, is to do a better job of telling our stories, uh, stories of our lives. Uh, uh, Vanessa, a bunch of folks have been up to kind of doing this over the last several months, uh, uh, encouraging us, challenging us, uh, uh, raising conundrums that are not easy to respond to. Um, and we also want to tell stories of mission, ways that we are um, uh, trying to live out our faith, uh, both as encouragement as also an opportunity to, be, to the for the storyteller to be encouraged as well. And I think Jesse DeCanto is going to share with us tonight. So Jesse, I'm going to clear a space for you up over here. Jesse is, uh, as most of you guys know well, really careful with that, is a writer at the News and Observer, and you've been contemplating a variety of, of changes in your life. So love to hear your story. Yeah, thanks. Um, a lot of you have probably heard uh, this saying by... St. Francis of Assisi uh, that goes something like uh, preach the gospel to every person and use words if you have to. And uh, that's been something that's always kind of resonated with me because I, I grew up in a very legalistic setting in uh, mostly in my schools, uh, private Christian schools in my college. Um, and I could see... Uh, the power that words had to undermine the gospel as much as to, uh, to convey it. Um, uh, I had actually had the experience when I was in college. Of, I was doing like a, a cross, a, a, a fantasy uh, basketball league, cross state lines. Some, somebody had friends. I was, in, I was in Ohio. Somebody had friends back in New Hampshire. And, uh, and they were cheating the, the, the guys uh, in the other, other campus were cheating and, and there was all these nasty emails going back and forth. And, um, and at one point, and th this is, I'm going to really, really open up to here because this is like probably the worst moment of my life. But I, I wrote something in one of these emails that said something like, you know, well, you know, I guess we can't expect you to treat people kindly if you don't know Jesus or something like that. So something that was the idea that I was conveying. Um, and you know, when you, when you grow up and experience and embody at times that kind of hypocrisy, then it, it, it can make you sort of leery about trying to use words to convey truth. Um, and so, uh, the, the, the tough thing, though, is that I work as a journalist and I work with words and I, that's sort of where my gifts are. So, you know, how to make sense of that. And when I first started as a reporter at this little newspaper in Ohio, uh, uh, within my first like 
weeks on the job. I picked up the, a copy of this newspaper uh, of this magazine called Prism. Some of you might know it. It's put out by Evangelicals for Social Action. And Stanley Hauerwas, who a lot of you know, um, used to write a column for it. And it just so happened the first the first edition of this magazine I ever picked up had Hauerwas riffing. His 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 column was called Hauerwas Riffs. And so he, here he is riffing on. <laughs> Uh, journalism ethics of all things I, and, and you know I'd never read the magazine here I am a cub reporter at this tiny little newspaper and basically what he said is um, you know I read I read newspapers like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or whatever is left on the seat in the in the airport uh, where, you know the airport lobby um, just to know what my enemies are up to that and that, that you know how was always subtle um, and he, he uh, basically his argument was that we have all these this talk about ethics being you know how do I be objective and 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 uh, not let my own biases affect what I'm writing and that's like sort of the the supreme ideal of journalism ethics and he basically turns it on its head and said no, no the like the only way to be an ethical journalist is to write about what's happening in the world from the perspective of what is God doing in the world. And so here I am like covering, you know, city council meetings and writing little features about, you know, kids winning awards or scholarships at school or, you know, covering the local, the, the latest string of robberies or what have you. And, and I'm, try, I'm wrestling with this and I wrestled with it for years and I'm still sort of wrestling with it. I, I think there's some, some truth to what he's saying. Uh, and early on, you know, I, I had the opportunity to, we got a call from this guy when I was working up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, this young father who tried to buy baby food and milk, some diapers at a grocery store. He dug all the change out of his, um, like out of his car seats and out of his couch and he, he had no money. And so he went and tried to buy this, these necessities with coins and they turned him away and said, you know, we, we can't take we can't take all that change. It was like $3.75 worth of pennies or something. And, uh, and so he called us up and, you know, you get, you get these calls if you work for a newspaper. Can't you do something about this? Make them feel, you know, shame them, shame them. So, so I shamed them and, uh, and he, you know, it worked, it worked out. But I mean, that was my first experience. He, and he, you know, they, they, they had a big ceremony, apologized to the guy and, and, you know, they were, they did write by him in the end, but um, that was kind of my first experience of feeling like, well, I, you know, I guess maybe there's some way that this work can be useful to doing justice. Um, uh, but what, not long after that, then I had the chance to write about this guy who I came to really admire, who um, was a high school history teacher. And he thought a lot about how his students were really kind of entitled and, and um, they, didn't, they weren't aware of, of the suffering that was going on in the world. And so he created this mentorship program where he would lead, he would basically create a tutoring program for kids in a local homeless shelter. And then he'd bring all these high school students with him to be tutors. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful. And... Then I like I wrote the story about him and I mentioned at some point near the end about how his Christian faith 
is what motivated him to do this. And he was really mad at me. He felt like, I've gained all this trust with these students. And, you know, they and their parents don't want me preaching to them. They, but, but, you know, I feel like I'm called to help them live into something better. I mean, live into the gospel in a way, even if they couldn't, couldn't articulate it. Um, and that, that was like really, really kind of life shaping to me. And I, and so, you know, as I've thought about, um, this, you know, St. Francis idea, (laughs) preach, preach the gospel to everyone and use words if you have to, I guess I've come to see my role as bearing witness to those deeds that are communicating the gospel and not, um, what's funny? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you said bearing witness. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Uh, Jesse, that's the scariest feeling in the world. Sitting in the round around your friends. It's yeah. usually Dan Rhodes that does me. <laughs> laughing like that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I done? It's going to be 20 minutes. Right. I won't know. So glad you had that experience. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, unfortunately, it, it's, it's, it's not often enough that I get to do those kinds of stories where I feel like I am, I am bearing witness to, to, to God's movement in the kingdom. And uh, uh, last year, I was finishing a master's program at UNC, and um, I had the opportunity to focus for, for a few months writing about uh, this, this um, North Carolina um, United Power and, and Durham Can and the um, uh, inter- IAF, right? Yeah. The, the, this, uh, this, the, these community organizers and churches from around the country that were and are and continue to um, try to uh, advocate for caps on interest rates to try to protect people from really heavy credit card debt. Um, and, that, and, and, and working on that, I ended up writing a, a cover story for the Christian Century. And, and um, since that time, over the past year, year and a half, I've been able to, to do more and more work for them. And uh, there's a magazine over at um, Duke Divinity School called Faith and Leadership. I've written actually for PRISM, that, were, that Howard Was column, uh, where I found that for, for a number of years. Um, uh, I just got to write a story about um, TROSA and the work they do here, um, helping people recover from substance addictions. Um, and uh, I'm right now working on a story for Reason Magazine out of Washington, D.C. about the injustices of the um, immigration enforcement and detention system. Um, and so finally, um, I, what, so something ha- is happening that I never thought would and that it's starting to look like I could make a living as a freelancer and doing these kinds of stories that I think really matter. Um, and y'all can really help me with that because one of the things I've discovered is that um, I'm, I'm more valuable if I can get out. I mean, I can, I, can, I can pitch and try to get people interested in a lot of stories in Durham and North Carolina, but 
But if I can figure out what's going on in other parts of the country, in the world too, then um, it's easier to to get get uh, you know real estate in, in in these magazines that have limited amounts of it. Um, and uh, so you know I'm 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 planning some trips to Minneapolis, Austin, Washington D.C. and trying to figure out line up stories that I can do in those places. Um, but so all that to say, um, I, I just, I, I sort of want to be a conduit for these kinds of stories, but I don't know where they all are. I just keep looking for them and, and trying to get these editors interested in them. And that's going well, um, but, but I'd, I'd sure appreciate uh, being able to draw on your networks here and elsewhere and, and just getting ideas for things that... Um, for stories that the church and the world need to hear. So thanks a lot. I appreciate you listening. Jesse, one of the things Jesse told me, we were talking a little bit about this. He has a, about a 50,000 word uh, foray into um, kind of a story of, I think it's migrant Christmas tree workers in North Carolina that's taking shape. And so one of the things that, you know, it's so important to us that mission is lived out in community. And so I appreciate your vulnerability of talking about both kind of career change for you. And then they ask for others to be a part of that. So I want to pray for Jesse before we pass the piece. God, we thank you for uh, Jesse and his family, their, um, their courage, their, they, they live lives of mission in, in both of uh, his and Julie's professional lives. And uh, we just uh, pray that uh, they're aware of our love and that we're collaborative with them, that we truly are conspiring with Jesse to tell stories that need to be told. And we pray your grace and mercy with him as he makes this transition. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jesse, for talking tonight. Hey, I want to give you an opportunity to stand up and offer the peace of Christ to each other. Or if you're around somebody you don't know, introduce yourself. Uh, it's a chance to grab something to eat a coffee and I'll call us back together for uh, in about 90 seconds. So I was at this um, editorial thing today for Conspire magazine, and they were asking for feedback. And it, it's a very artsy kind of font and layout and all of these things. And it's a little hard to kind of adjust your eyes and see it and those sort of things. And I said, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, again, just in my temperament, I'm thinking because I'm kind of a, a line and square kind of temperament person. Sometimes this is hard to see. <laughs> and Shane Claiborne shoots back at me. Well, you know, you are in that demographic now where it's hard to see. I can't believe I'm getting accused of being in the old demographic, but I'm going to put on glasses tonight because I'm going to read a couple of things to you. So if that makes me really old, it's true. So, hey, this is a stump speech. So apologies. This is, this is going to be partisan, but I'm using it illustratively rather than informatively. But this is uh, an Obama stump speech from, uh, I guess, right before, a year before the election in the warm-up to the Iowa caucuses. And I'm just going to read you a couple of highlights from this, uh, and then I'm going to read something from the Old Testament and ask you to compare them. So this is uh, our president. Um, now, here's the good news. I can't imitate him. I wish I could. I, you know, he has that great kind of clipping off the final syllable of every word, and I can't do that. Somebody probably can. But here's the good news. The name George W. Bush will not be on the ballot. 
Dick Cheney will not be on the ballot. The era of Scooter Libby justice and Brownie incompetence and Karl Rove politics will finally be over. We are in a defining moment in our history. Our nation is at war. The planet is in peril. The dream that so many generations fought for feels as if it's slowly slipping away. And most of all, we lost faith that our leaders can or will do anything about it. And the only mission that was ever accomplished is to use fear and falsehood to take this country on a war that should have never been authorized and should have never been waged. This party, the party of Jefferson and Jackson, of Roosevelt and Kennedy, has always made the biggest difference in the lives of the American people when we led, not by polls, but by principle, not by calculation, but by conviction, when we summon the entire nation to a common purpose, a higher purpose. I will lead the world to combat the common threats of the 21st century, nuclear weapons and terrorism, climate change, poverty, genocide and disease. And I will send once more a message to those yearning faces beyond our shores that say, you matter to us. Your future is our future and our moment is now. And if those Republicans come at me with the same fear mongering and swift voting as they usually do, then I'll take them head on because I believe the American people are tired of fear, tired of distractions and tired of diversions. We can make this election not about fear, but about the future. And that won't just be a Democratic victory. That will be an American victory. I am running in this race because of what Dr. King's called the fierce urgency of now, because I believe that there's such a thing as being too late and that hour is almost upon us. I don't want to see American lives put at risk because no one had the judgment or the courage to stand up against a misguided war before our troops were sent in to fight. I'm uh, I'm in this race for the same reason that I fought for jobs for the jobless, hope for the hopeless, for the same reason I fought for justice and equality, because I will never forget that the only reason that I'm standing here today is because somebody somewhere stood up for me when it was risky, stood up when it was hard, stood up when it wasn't popular. And because somebody stood up, a few more stood up and then a few thousand stood up and then a few million stood up and standing up with courage and clear purpose, they somehow managed to change the world. So those are some highlights. Uh, I, I remember kind of being sick a few years, I guess, a couple elections back the night before the Iowa caucus. And I listened to everybody's stump speeches and realized they pretty much said the same thing in every state. But that was Obama's kind of standard stump speech in the early part of his campaign. Now, we give you a, a little bit of uh, something else as well. Just this is Ezekiel 34, which is I'm going to read just a few highlights of this. This is the um, the background uh, as we get to Jesus in John 9, uh, John 10, excuse me. Um, this is probably the text that his audience would have listened to, would have known. Uh, so these are just a few highlights. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search my, for my sheep. 
and look after them. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will find a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. I will save my flock. They will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. So quick shot at that. What are some comparisons between, I know you're not looking at this, but just broad impressions. What are any similarities between the Obama speech and the prophetic saying of Ezekiel 34, kind of a messianic saying talking about the coming king? Any parallels? Yeah, so they both really go at leaders, don't they? And, 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 and rightly or wrongly say that failure is on their hands. Absolutely. Thanks, Sir Kate. Others? Yeah, this, this one guy can make it happen. <laughs> what do you think about that, Daniel? <laughs> Other reactions? Oh, I'm sorry. Good to see you. Interesting. Yeah. So that's a good contrast. Absolutely. It's interesting that you, I mean, we're talking about the leaders, but it's also interesting that the focus is on the sheep or the people. Well, I mean, sorry, the focus is not there. The focus is, is, is on the leadership. So it's really saying that um, the people in both cases are followers. Right. Absolutely. They're sheep. They're, they're, they're very dependent on who leads them. Yeah. You know, back to Daniel's comment, I was watching political speeches with a friend uh, or speaking somewhere and he was, he was a big Obama supporter. And, and, uh, and the, one of the first things that he said, listening to this is like, my goodness, our presidential candidates now are so eschatological, you know, that kind of the word that means focusing on the end and the conclusion of all things. I mean, we almost expect our, our leaders, don't we, to solve every problem in the world. And if they're not declaring peace in our time or the end of poverty tomorrow, uh, we don't believe them, do we? Uh, though, if you sit back and kind of go, my goodness, I'm not sure that, that that's going to happen. But, but isn't that us as we listen to a political speech? We are yearning, we're dreaming, we're, we're hoping for something entirely better. Um, and, and believing that possibly it could happen. And to promise that, in some ways, one has to indict what has gone wrong, so to speak. 
And, and Ezekiel 34 is a strong kind of denouncement of how the people of Israel were led. A prophet, a lonely guy looking at the people in power and saying, there's something incredibly wrong here. And in some ways, as we fast forward to John chapter 10, we're in the same circumstance. Uh, we're in the same moment, but now it's Jesus talking. And interestingly, just as you hear, Sarah's going to read uh, a bit of the text tonight. But as you hear that tonight, think of Ezekiel 34. Remember that if you were um, a, a Jewish teenager or a young person or, or especially if you were old, you would have sat in the synagogues, you would have gone to the temple, you would have heard these texts read over and over again of the uh, Lord promising a shepherd, promising a king in the line of David. This was messianic talk. And so in some ways that prepares us to hear what Jesus says to a crowd of people, many of whom are ready to stone him uh, for his words. This is from John 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. One who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to me. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not part of this head. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of someone possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Thanks, Sarah. So just a quick comment there from you guys. So you have heard the words of Ezekiel all your life. The promise of a good shepherd. Jesus stands up and, and makes this claim of himself. What does he say?
I, I'm the guy. Yeah, absolutely. Could you imagine that moment? I mean, you've, you know, things take a lar- uh, take almost a larger than life feel, don't they? When you've, like, if you've heard a song on the radio or you've read something and then you encounter the musician or encounter the artist, it's, it's kind of like, could it really be that moment? And for Jesus, he's taking this ancient prophecy, a very cutting edge, very sharp prophecy, and, and he's associating himself with that in this moment with the people. So you can imagine that he's going to suffer the kind of accusations that he, he suffers here. So let's look at, the, look at the first five verses of this. Now, um, Philip, I'm not sure if John wrote this in your English class or if Jesus said it this way. I feel like you might have marked them down a little bit. You probably would have called this B minus work rather than than A work. I think I'm just guessing uh, because if you read this, notice that he mixes the metaphor, so to speak, is that this really is two parables smashed together. Um, But notice what Jesus is saying is he's he's first saying that I am the sheep gate. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this. I have seen this a couple times, uh, particularly uh, Denise, we've seen this together in um, in the Maasai part of, of Africa. You remember how they, they would have the, their huts would be built with the doors facing kind of a common corral and their animals, I think they were goats and I'm not sure what else, uh, they, the goats for milk and would have been in the common corral that the whole village kind of did, but there would have been one gate that didn't lead into people's homes. And I think what people did, if I remember correctly, they would often bring their goats in from the corral into their home for the evening to protect them even more so uh, from wild animals, people that things that would try to kill them. But there always was a common gate where you could take them out into pasture land to, to kind of eat. And so what Jesus is saying is, I am that common gate. I am the gate. Uh, you, the, for sheep to find pasture, to find life, to find food, to find solace, you have to go through me. I am the gate. And this is why I think uh, Philip would have dropped a B minus on him on this is then in the very middle of this, he switches this from the idea of the gate and he becomes the shepherd, so to speak. And, and the idea is in, 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 in ancient shepherding, particularly in the ancient Near East, we, we think of shepherding often like with dogs driving sheep and animals and things like that, cattle. But they usually marched in front of their animals and called them with their, with their voices. And so now he's describing himself as not just the gate, but there is this intimacy of my people, the, the flock, the created human beings know me. They know my voice. They follow me. So in some ways, what we get here is we get two, um, two pretty different metaphors squished together in the same story for Jesus to tell us a couple things about himself. But um, there are other actors in this story, of course. We meet uh, thieves, we meet robbers, we meet uh, hired workers. And in some ways, what we see here is a very, very critical, not veiled in any way, form, or fashion, a critique against the leaders of the day is that Jesus is saying, and this is such a huge thing. We've seen this constantly in John's gospel. It is not soft words. Jesus is saying things have have either led up to my coming or there are things that I have to replace. 
And so Jesus is not kindly saying those who stand around me, the leaders of the people, those who are not going to follow my voice, those that are not going to sense that I am the gate, they are thieves, they're robbers, they're hirelings, they don't care. He's telling the people that you have been led into a corner, you have been led into dangerous ground by the people. So he's setting this up not as a them and me type of situation, but he's laying it all out there because we're right before his Passion Week begins. We're right before the cross that you've got to follow me, so to speak. And so Jesus is setting himself up as the as the good shepherd. This wasn't an unexpected thing. It was, it was part of Ezekiel. There are several mentionings in the Old Testament. There are several parts of other gospels. This was normal language to talk to farmers, to shepherds, a very common way of saying that I am good and I want you to follow me. But John adds one aspect of shepherding. I'm going to quiz you on this to see if you notice this. There's one thing that he says that he's going to do that doesn't seem like good shepherding. Anybody notice that in the story? Wademan? Yeah, so, so tell me how that helps. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that John adds this, and Amy's smirking because she mentioned the same thing to me earlier this week. The one thing that John adds to this beautiful portrait of shepherding, I'm the gate, I'm the voice my sheep hear, is this intentionality that I am going to die for my sheep. I'm going to lay down my life. Now, let's imagine that Amy is indeed a shepherdess. You have, how many sheep do you have? A couple thousand, something like that. And you're wandering around and you make the plan to die. What does that do for the sheep? I mean, it's not good. I mean, you know, if you had a choice between Andy as your shepherd and he plans to stick around and not kick it and Amy is, you choose Amy, Andy, because it's, it's a, it's a better deal. But this is the aspect of this story that Jesus highlights as the most significant part of his goodness is that he is going to die for his sheep. Now, this is a question that we've asked many times in our dialogues over John is about the goodness of God. Uh, what, what is being said about God as, as person? Is God indeed good? Is God followable in this? And Jesus's answer to this and John's answer to this is that yes, because I will die for my sheep. Now, a couple of thoughts on this. Death I would be quick to say is probably the most unpardonable subject to bring up in small talk. I mean, you know, if you're at a cocktail party, you're hanging out with friends and they say, let's, let's talk about dying or let's talk about what death does to our, I mean, what do you do with that person? I mean, you smile, <laughs> you say, can I get you a drink? Uh, can I introduce you to somebody who you can tell this to. I mean, no one wants to talk about death. And I think Jesus probably had the same reaction. Here's the disciples around him. They've put all their hopes in him and he's planning to die. And the people have all these hopes of a messianic leader and he's planning to die. Um, I want to give a big thank to, to Jacob Levin. He had a great article for pub group this week on this whole idea of death. And there were a couple things that really caught my eye in this is that, isn't it interesting? What did Obama basically promise to us in the stump speech? And I, I like Obama, so I'm, but I'm going to, what did he basically promise? Change the world. Change the world. And while he's doing it, what's he going to do? He's going to keep us safe. Can he do that? 
I mean, that's a pretty big job description. I mean, you know, I like to look at my kids and say, you, I'll always be there for you. I will keep you safe. But the thing that always stops me from saying that is it's a lie. <laughs> I'm not able to deliver that reality. But interestingly, in the world that we live in, um, the, that is the job of our, our government. It's our job of, of, of society is to keep us safe and keep death at a distance and to keep it far away from us. And, and, and perhaps even to tell us when it would be good and appropriate to die. Dave, you've been a great lawyer, great dad. You've been around for 110 years. It just would be wonderful for you to just kind of let it go at this moment, you know, so to speak. But, but death is something that we imagine is way out there. It's never to come. And the people who have power over our lives are to, in some ways, keep that from ever happening on us. Now, the article we read, this was fascinating to me, is interestingly, he was using liturgies from the the medieval world. And it's interesting, in the English liturgies in the medieval world, they would take the, the dead body and they would do the liturgy to the dead body. So it would all be in second person. Uh, Wade, uh, may God guard you, and you are this, you are that. Uh, but as the modern age began, you know what happened in the liturgies is they changed it all from second person to third person. So all of a sudden, uh, a funeral liturgy wasn't for the salvation of Wade or the hope for your soul to cling to God's presence. But in some ways, death became a little bit separate. And all of a sudden, the funeral liturgy was something for the faith of the people around Wade. But Wade is somewhere entirely else. And we've had kind of five year, 500 years of that type of mindset represented in our theology, in our liturgies, and even in our politics that death is something that's supposed to be really, really far away. Um, And in some ways, in Christian theology, there's two ways that we deal with death. We say, God has taken care of us. The future is great. Salvation is among us, but it's way out there. And it doesn't, we don't really explain in some ways how that might affect how you live your life today. It's just something that is good and distant. The other thing that we do in Christian theology when it comes to death is we spend a lot of our energy figuring out very, very specifically who is going to be saved and what it takes to be saved as if we have a lot of control over that matter. So in some ways, even now, our theologies of death are still of this great mystery that's, that's far in the future or, or the only thing we can say about it is making sure that we, we conquer death. Um, I've said this many times in in sermons and other places that in some ways when people talk about the gospel, what they often think about is that the gospel of Jesus Christ allows us to avoid death. Uh, Death is a a big old roadblock in the middle of the street. But if you are, are with God, then you can go around death and never have to experience his pain. But in reality, the thing about the gospel for Jesus is that it was never about avoiding death. It was the invitation to follow Christ in death and in resurrection. Life always happens in the gospel on the far side of death. It's an experience. And in John's gospel, Jesus talks about death never separate from the idea of his resurrection. So it's all to say that for for us, I think one of the things that's hard about hearing Jesus's words, I am the gate. 
I am the one who leads you to good pasture. I'm the voice that you can follow. And here's the really good news. I'm going to die for you. I think most of us receive that as an an inappropriate line in a cocktail. We're not supposed to talk about death. We've elected people so that we don't have to talk about death. death. We've got priests who are on call for us when this unfortunate circumstance happens that really does affect all of us to keep it at a distance from us. And one of the things I've been thinking about a good deal with John's gospel is where do we see the goodness Where do we see the goodness of God? Where do we see the goodness of Christ? He is claiming to be the good shepherd. Where do we see that? And in some ways, the answer to that is that it's in Jesus' death. Um, We are being reminded constantly that this is what Jesus is saying. This is what I have done for you. And there's a really big invitation in that for us is that to in some ways, reverse the idea of death being something that is distant and far apart, but taking Jesus's death and resurrection and asking, how does that shape every aspect of my life? How does that affect what I spend, where I live, who I live with, how I dis- what my discourse is about the world, what my hopes are. Um, how do I let this idea of Jesus' death, the invitation that he is the gate, he is the shepherd, the invitation that we follow him, how does that affect everything that we do? I, used to, I think this came from, uh, from Josh last week, but one of the things that sometimes we tend to do is we look at Jesus and Jesus' death as saving us from God. Is that, thank goodness, because if God got a hold of us, it would be absolutely horrific. But thank goodness that Jesus prevents us from having to deal with that. What's his answer in John's gospel to that kind of thinking? The people say, uh, Sarah didn't read this. The people say, (laughs) Dan, you commented about this too. Aren't you the Messiah? When are you going to say it plainly? When are you going to say whether you are the Messiah? Or at least would you do a miracle? Would you blow something up? Would you do something that proves that you're God? And what is Jesus' answer to that? Are you the Messiah? I and the Father are one. And so in so many ways, if we begin to think about Jesus as a good shepherd, we're not setting Jesus against God But we're looking at Jesus as an invitation for us to experience not only his death, but his resurrection and let his resurrection affect every aspect of our life. I think that's what we're preparing for as we as we sit in this season of Lent. We're preparing not to think of Easter as an anomaly or Easter as thank goodness we've got it on our side. But we're preparing to experience Easter as an experience that affects every aspect of our lives. The good shepherd, his invitation to us is to follow him, to hear his voice, let him be the gate, and let his resurrection dominate every aspect of our lives. Wade, I think you and the guys are going to lead us in a musical confession and absolution tonight. But as we sing, I want to encourage us to, uh, to ponder the thought of Christ is indeed a good shepherd. One who has invited us to enjoy him in life, death, and life again. Thank you, Tim. If you'll uh, take a look at your lyrics we're going to do for our confession um... 
Leonard Cohen song. Um, we're only going to do some of the verses. Uh, Tim, you tell me how many there are. Are there like 50 verses or something to this song? Uh, some, he wrote uh, over 70 verses. 70, yeah. We're not going to do 70 tonight. Um, but um, we're going to do the ones you have before you. And one of the things, um, this song, I think, uh, at least the verses we picked have... Um, as their theme, a, a, a breakdown in love, a place where love sort of seems to fail. And uh, so that'll be our our confession. And um, then we'll move into uh, a song of absolution that's um, uh, uh, a traditional that really uses the shepherd imagery. Um, one thing that I was thinking about, Tim, when you were talking about death is I was thinking about uh, Mike Mason wrote a book called The Mystery of Marriage. And one of the things he said about marriage is that in a good marriage, he feels like you, you invite death to the table, which seems really counterintuitive. But he was saying if you have a sense that it will be over at, at some point in terms of uh, your, your life together, that there is a, a, way, a sense that when you have death at the table, you, you have an urgency to the care that you bring to each other and to love. And I think... There's um, this idea that as we believe that we, we have limited time, that we will die at some point, that we also know that love and our work on that is what will go on. Um, and then as we're resurrected, that, that life with God will go on in love. So our confession. Love is not a victory march. 
where it says going up home to live in green pastures where we shall live and die nevermore even the Lord will be in that number he'll be with us that's the journey his promise of presence through death and into life Leading the way 
Those who have strayed were sought by the master. He who once gave his life for his sheep. Out on the mountain, still he is searching, bringing them in for if we have one. Those are two of my favorite songs that offer both confession and absolution, um, I think, in a wonderfully intimate way. So I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Now, I don't know about you, but I can think of a lot of ways to have a full life. I can think of a lot of ways that I can enjoy a full life. I can think of, I'm on a boat. I can think of, you know, an MTV crib. I can think of something like that. Instead of Jesus talking all this hash about being the shepherd and the sheep gate, I can think of maybe a Bill Gates that I would like to model my life off of. Uh, I can think a lot about a full and what a plentiful life would look like. But none of the ones that come to mind have the idea that I'm going to follow the Savior to the cross. None of them have the notion that death is going to play a role in any of them. You see, I think as we come to the table tonight, as we sit here with Jesus, the shepherd, and as the gate, 
we find ourselves engaging in something that is at the heart of our human experience. Something that no matter how much we try to construct our lives around us, we cannot put off. That even when we try to do it, it comes back to haunt us. That our relationships, our politics, our economics, all of our social life together gets bound by death when we try not to deal with it. Here at the table, we recognize that Christ steps into the middle of our insecurities, into the middle of our finitude, into the middle of who we are as creatures that cannot live forever. And he offers us grace. He offers us grace saying that in him life will be given to us that will be enjoyed eternally. That as we come to the table to break the body of Christ together, to drink the blood of Christ together, we are invited into a foretaste, a taste of the life of resurrection that is both coming but is already here in some sense. That we are tasting both life as it will be and yet life as it is already made possible with Christ's resurrection. That the grace of Christ does not leave us in our insecurities. It does not leave us solely in our finitude. It does not leave us in our broken relationships, in our crumbled economic policies, and in our politics of war, but it enters into that, binds us up, and points us to a shepherd who leads in a different direction. I invite you to the table tonight as a place where we foretaste, where Easter is something that is both coming, but in some sense it is already breaking in. That the relationships, the lives of grace are yet in some sense to be completed, but can still be enjoyed here, now but under the recognition that that's a dangerous thing. That it's a scary thing. That it leaves us there to face the reality of death, not alone, but in Christ. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come to break the bread of Christ to pour wine or juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. We do that here at Emmaus Way by gathering around the table, breaking it for one another. And as we offer bread to one another, we say the body of Christ broken for you. And as we offer wine or juice to one another, we say the blood of Christ shed for you. We do that tonight, recognizing that we are fragile, finite, insecure, in some sense creatures that are only here for a small time. But we also do that with the great hope and the great present foretaste that Christ has gathered our lives up to God in grace. And that in that, God does not lose track of who we are, but invites us into a life eternal. I invite you now to the table. Come taste the fruit and the body of the Good Shepherd. Amen.
Tim Dale Wade, great job tonight. Thank you guys so much for doing a musical liturgy for us. And we uh, just invite you all to continue to gather, but also to go in God's peace.